0: So I say to Jeff Bezos, Jeff, you're worth $182 billion. That's a lot of money. What is your problem with allowing workers in Alabama to organize for better wages and for better working conditions? Yeah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. What's your problem, Jeff Bezos? I got the feeling something right. Get it right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering now I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left me me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast As heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, Nicole Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet Earth, Five Days a Week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me... From Bradblog.com. I can't see why you wouldn't agree. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good to have you here for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast as the accountability train is chugging forward today, Desi Doyen.
1: Yes, okie dokie. It It is. is. It
0: is, at least in my opinion. Uh, And when it is, that is always a good day. No matter what, all else hell is breaking loose. Uh, Also, the unionization train is chugging forward once again at Amazon. That's good news as workers there and elsewhere are finally feeling their oats a little bit as we struggle to come out of the pandemic. Uh, We've got one of our favorite guests here to talk about that shortly and then there is the return of the green news report.
1: Yay, that's after, the best part. <laughs> if
0: you say so. That after a, a week off for the holiday and there will be uh, plenty of both good and bad news ahead because as there's always. a lo- as always but there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, on the GNR after a week away. So let me start here, jump in with the accountability train for the moment. Three federal appellate judges appear likely to reject Donald Trump's effort to block January 6 investigators from obtaining his White House records from the National Archives, at least as Politico reports it this afternoon, citing a big potential boost for congressional lawmakers hoping to reveal the former president's actions. Before, during and after the attack by a mob of his supporters on the U.S. Capitol. This is the case in which you will recall earlier in November, U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin found in favor of the National Archives and the House Committee and the White House, uh, noting that presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. The plaintiff in that case being one Donald J. Trump. Judge Patricia Millett, one of the three Democratic appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals panel that heard uh, arguments on Tuesday in the uh, appeal by Donald Trump in this high profile fight, noted, quote, We have one president at a time under our Constitution. She added that. That incumbent president has made the judgment and is best positioned, as the Supreme Court has told us, to make the call as to the interests of the executive branch. As they questioned Trump's lawyers, the judges repeatedly expressed skepticism that a former president could override a decision by the sitting president, in this case Joe Biden, to release subpoenaed documents to Congress, particularly when the incumbent has decided... It's in the national interest to release those records to investigators during the three and a half hour argument session, Millet and fellow judges Robert Wilkins and Ketanji Brown Jackson, all Democratic appointees to the appeals court, underscored deep concerns about allowing a former president to intervene in, nego- in delicate negotiations between the sitting president and the Congress. One of the three judges, Jackson, uh, Biden's only appointee to the uh, D.C. circuit, seemed most amenable to the current administration's position. Wilkins and Millet seemed more receptive to some of Trump's arguments, although neither seemed inclined to rule in his favor, at least as Josh Gerstein and Kyle Cheney at Politico saw it today. The court's ruling, which could come within days, could determine whether the House January 6th Select Committee gains access to a massive trove of Trump's White House records that are believed to shed light on his efforts to steal the 2020 election by stopping Congress from certifying Biden's victory. Judge Millett also complained that Trump himself has not gone on record to explain why The specific documents at issue are so sensitive that they should be withheld. Judge Millett said we have no declarations. We have no particularization. The court itself is supposed to go through and make arguments that the former president has not. Judge Wilkins said that Trump's attorneys seem to be advocating for a test that would give the former president's objections as much weight as it would If he had that, he had as much weight as it would have had when he actually was president, which neglects the significance of Biden's own decision, the current president, I guess I must point out, to allow those records, in fact, to go to Congress. Wilkins said skeptically, quote, it's as if the incumbent president's determination to waive executive privilege like didn't happen at all. is irrelevant, doesn't matter. Trump's attorneys have painted the case as a momentous fight about the powers of the executive branch, which I guess I should note here, Donald Trump is not actually in anymore. But House Counsel Douglas' letter insisted that there is no such battle underway because both Joe Biden and the House are both in agreement here. He told the judges, quote, there is no clash between the branches. The president has made a decision, which he explained, about the importance of the American people having the select committee get to the truth. Not all the comments by the judges, however, were dismissive of Trump's position. As AP notes in its coverage, the judges sharply questioned both sides and challenged them with hypothetical scenarios. To Trump's lawyers, Judge Millett suggested a situation where a current president negotiating with a foreign leader needed to know what promises a former president had made to that leader. The incumbent might seek to release a transcript of a phone call or other records from the previous administration for national security reasons. According to the judge, Millett said to uh, Trump lawyer Justin Clark, quote, to be clear, Your position is a former president could come in and file a lawsuit. Clark responded, that is our position. Wow. So, hey, you wondering, by the way, what uh, Donald Trump may have said to uh, Zelensky on any of his phone calls or to uh, Zelensky of Ukraine or to uh, Putin or to China's Xi? You want to know what he what promises were made? Apparently, Donald Trump thinks that's none of the current president's business.
1: Well, you know, national security really is subservient to whatever works for Donald Trump.
0: Apparently so. To a lawyer for the House committee, however, Millet raised a scenario where a newly elected president might seek retribution against a disliked predecessor. The new president and a Congress led by the same party might declare that there was a national security interest in releasing all of the former president's records, even at the risk of endangering people's lives, she said. Needless to say, the former president comes to court and says, hang on, Millett noted. What happens then? Well, Doug Letter on behalf of the House committee argued that the determination of a current president should still outweigh predecessors in almost all circumstances and noted once again that both Biden and Congress were in agreement that the January 6 record specifically should be turned over. In fact, uh, the president is said, or at least his counsel is said to have looked at these requested documents, hasn't just said, oh, yeah, sure, take anything you want. Uh, He's looked at it and decided that, in fact, These are these documents are important enough to the investigation to be released. Doug Letter said it would be astonishing for this court to override the current president and the current Congress. Referring to the January 6 Trump incited attack on the U.S. Capitol, Letter noted later, quote, It is difficult to imagine a more critical subject for congressional investigation, And Mr. Trump's arguments cannot overcome Congress's pressing need. Given the stakes of the case, no matter the outcome at this point, uh, either side is likely to appeal to the GOP's packed and stolen 6-3 U.S. Supreme Court, which currently includes three justices Donald Trump himself packed onto the bench after Senate Republicans ended the use of the filibuster in order to do so when it comes to Supreme Court justices. So that is moving forward. And uh, for the moment, at least it's moving very quickly. Whether the Supreme Court, if and when they get the case, uh, move with such alacrity is a separate question. Mm -hmm. If they wish to decide on behalf of the uh, committee, they could uh, largely put the kibosh on this whole thing Even in such an event, just by delaying that decision, delaying a hearing and then delaying a decision on the case until next June when the current session ends. That would be just months before the midterm elections, and it is likely that Democrats could lose control of the House and with it the entire U.S. Select Committee currently investigating that January 6th attack. The committee has said in the meantime they hope to release a full report on what happened by this spring. Democratic congressman and committee member Pete Aguilar of uh, California said last night on MSNBC that the committee has now held more than 250 interviews uh, with witnesses. So they are serious. They are moving fast. But if Trump's documents, even if eventually released, are held up by the Supreme Court until next summer, Well, that is likely to hamper uh, quite a bit of accountability that the bipartisan committee appears hoping to bring here in this case. And uh, on a related note, following the findings, at least so far, against the disgraced former president and perhaps more directly, the two federal indictments of his former aide, Steve Bannon, for contempt of Congress and refusing to answer subpoenas, for both testimony and documents from the committee that could land him in prison for as many as two years. Steve Bannon, uh, in light of all of that, Trump's former chief of staff uh, during the January 6 attack, that would be Mark Meadows. Well, he now seems at least to be getting the message that these folks on the U.S. Select Committee are damned serious and that the law is on their side, not his. CNN was first to report early on Tuesday that Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is now cooperating with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot and is providing records and agreeing to appear for an initial interview. Well, that is good, I think. At least in theory. We'll see. We will see. The move represents a, a critical shift in the relationship between the uh, between the top Trump ally and the panel, according to CNN, and staves off a criminal contempt referral for now. In a statement released on Tuesday, uh, Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, the chair of the committee, said, quote, Mr. Meadows has been engaging with the select committee through his attorney. He has produced records to the committee and will soon appear for an initial deposition. The select committee, he said, expects all witnesses, including Mr. Meadows, to provide all information requested and that the select committee is lawfully entitled to receive. The committee will continue to assess his degree of compliance with our subpoena after the deposition, said Thompson. So they are leaving the door open still, it seems, for contempt. Uh, If Meadows does not play ball at that deposition, as they expect, Meadows attorney, George Terwilliger, said in a statement to CNN that there is now an understanding between the two parties on how information can be exchanged moving forward, stating that his client and the committee are open to engaging on a certain set of topics as they work out how to deal with information that the committee is seeking that could fall under, wait for it. Executive privilege. (laughs) So, yeah, he's going to try to play that card as well, uh, just as Steve Bannon has so far tried but so far failed, just as Donald Trump himself initially failed at the uh, lower U.S. District Court and argued again on Tuesday at the Court of Appeals. So this agreement, CNN notes, could be fragile with Mark Meadows if the two sides do not agree on what is actually privileged information. The acknowledgement of the deal, however, comes as multiple sources tell CNN that Meadows has shown a willingness to cooperate and has entered a new posture with the committee because, yeah, indictments against his buddy, Uh, Steve Bannon undoubtedly would have an effect, that sort of effect on a person. (laughs) It should, at least. Uh, Underscoring again why accountability matters. You bring accountability against Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows gets the message that he better play ball. Even though Meadows has begun engaging with the committee in a more serious way, CNN notes the extent to which he will fully cooperate and the questions of what he will try to claim as executive privilege still hangs in the balance that according to multiple sources. For the moment, however, the agreement means the committee will hold off from pursuing criminal contempt against Meadows, which they had threatened to do this week, though that route always remains a possibility, according to the sources Uh, One of them familiar with the process tells CNN it's not correct to say he has cooperated. It's not, excuse me, it's not incorrect to say he has cooperated to some extent. But the source said he has not completely fulfilled his obligation and we need to see what happens. Uh, Adding, but Meadows doesn't want to be held in contempt. Now, his engagement with the committee Stands in stark contrast to Steve Bannon, as we noted, who is now facing two criminal contempt charges uh, and uh, in contrast with former Department of Justice official Jeffrey Clark, who the committee will vote on a criminal contempt referral report on Wednesday. Now, Clark, if you will recall was the low level DOJ official who had written letters to state legislatures in states that Trump had lost, like Georgia, um, that told them they should reconvene. They should choose Trump electors instead because the DOJ had found fraud when the DOJ had actually found no such thing. And Trump had almost named this guy, Jeffrey Clark, to be attorney general because he was willing to take that sort of action. Uh, and he almost did it right before January 6, except for the fact that the acting attorney general at the time, Jeffrey Rosen, who, by the way, is said to be cooperating with the House committee. Jeffrey Rosen and his deputy and a bunch of U.S. attorneys had all threatened uh, to resign en masse if Jeffrey Clark was put in control of the DOJ just before January 6. The source told CNN. Uh, about Mark Meadows that, quote, it is fair to say he is not Bannon and he is not Clark and he doesn't want to be, but how much he is cooperating and how much he will cooperate remains an open question. He has not fulfilled all of his obligations and it is not entirely, entirely clear yet how much he will cooperate. The source said, we can tell the difference between someone who is stalling or faking and added, we don't think that's what's going on here. Well, I hope that source is right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But nonetheless, I'm glad to hear the uh, select committee continues to be damned serious about all of this stuff. So this stuff is moving. And in fact, uh, while it sometimes seems maddeningly slow because we're all anxious for some real accountability, it's actually moving pretty quickly on several different fronts now. Finally, there are, in fact, a few other cases of accountability happening concurrently. But I've got a guest standing by and our latest Green News report, our first one after a week off, that's coming up today. So we're going to have to pick up the accountability train on another day uh, very soon, I suspect. Uh, Right now, I want to take a quick break and we will come back with some separate but also seemingly good news that we mentioned very briefly as it broke just before yesterday's show. The workers at an Amazon warehouse down in Bessemer, Alabama, are about to get a second shot. A mulligan at unionizing after the National Labor Relations Board found that the e-commerce giant violated the law during the last attempt to hold a unionization vote earlier this year. That story with the great labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyan and myself, thank you. <laughs>
2: A union town, all down the line. Yeah. Is a union town, a union town, all down
0: the line. Yeah, well, Bessemer, Alabama used to be a union town all down the line. Let's hope maybe someday it will be again. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Some very good news broke just before our airtime on Monday, which we only had time to quickly note yesterday. But workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, as reported by The Washington Post, are going to get a second shot at unionizing this spring. That after a uh, National Labor Relations Board official called for a revote after finding that the e-commerce giant improperly interfered in the first Election, Just as we discussed and reported on this program at the time during the lead up to the vote earlier this year, the retail, wholesale and department store union, which is working to unionize the staff in Bessemer, said the agency has set the new election for next spring. The do over will bring the high profile campaign back to the warehouse that opened in March of 2020 as the RWDSU works to crack the U.S.'s second largest private employer. Union President Stuart Applebaum said in a statement, "Quote: The decision confirms that we what we were all saying all along, that Amazon's intimidation and interference prevented workers from having a fair say in whether they wanted a union in their workplace. That is both unacceptable and illegal, he said. Amazon workers deserve to have a voice at work, which can only come from a union. Amazon spokeswoman Kelly Nantel for her part blasted the NLRB's decision, saying workers benefit from a quote direct relationship with managers, whatever that might mean, and that unions get in the way of the company's ability to remain nimble. Nantel said our employees have always had the choice of whether or not to join a union and they overwhelmingly chose not to join the RWDSU earlier this year. That, of course, is after Amazon forced workers to attend weekly mandatory meetings where anti-union consultants presented distorted and often false information about why unions would be bad for them and even reportedly posted anti-union propaganda signs in bathroom stalls at the plant. Amazon's Nantel went on to say, quote, it's disappointing that the NLRB has now decided that those votes shouldn't count because, you know, she's concerned about democracy and all. During the nearly two-month mail-in balloting that ended in March, the union drew support from the leaders of the AFL-CIO as well as liberal politicians nationally like Bernie Sanders and former Georgia gubernatorial candidate and voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams. During the time of the voting in support of the Protect the Right to Organize or PRO Act, President Biden even released a video statement that at the time was described as one of the most direct statements in support of unions from an American president in history, certainly in modern history. Even with that support, down in Bessemer, a town with a long, if faded, tradition of organized labor, particularly in the African-American worker community, The union decisively lost that first election at Amazon with workers, a majority of whom had supported holding the referendum initially, rejecting joining the RWDSU by a more than two to one margin. The rapid turnover at Amazon warehouses, however, where workers often stay for just a few weeks or months, could change the outcome in a second do-over vote. The NLRB found that Amazon's efforts to place an unmarked U.S. Postal Service mailbox in front of the warehouse just after voting started could have potentially influenced workers by giving the impression that the company had a role in collecting and counting ballots themselves. The NLRB also found that Amazon's pressuring employees to display anti-union paraphernalia Uh, In doing so, the company uh, that the company handed out that that was also improper because it, quote, could reasonably cause an employee to perceive that the employer was trying to discern their support for or against the union. The good news for labor of a revote at Amazon's Bessemer plant now comes amid a wave of labor strikes at a number of large companies around the country amid what is being described as the great resignation with an unprecedented number of low wage workers having quit their jobs as the pandemic hopefully continues to fade and as they seek opportunities for jobs with better pay and benefits in a much tighter labor market than we've seen in the country For years, as noted on our previous broadcast, new jobless claims, for example, last week, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, came in at less than 200,000 nationwide. That is the lowest number since 1969 for initial jobless claims, suggesting that the tide may finally be turning for the first time in decades toward labor and labor rights and increases in both pay and benefits for workers for the first time in a very, very long time. Joining us now to discuss all of this, as he did when the first union organizing vote at the Amazon plant took place in Bessemer, Alabama, is Nelson Lichtenstein, a labor historian and distinguished professor at the Department of History at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's also the author of some 16 books, including most recently Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, He's an inducted member of the Society of American Historians and winner of the 2012 Sidney Hillman Foundation's Sal Stetton Award for Lifetime Achievement in Labor History. Professor Lichtenstein, it's an honor to have you back on the broadcast, sir. Great to be here. Uh, so I was uh, very surprised, pleasantly so, to hear that the U.S. National Labor Relations Board found Amazon's actions during the first vote at uh, at the Bessemer plant, so egregious that they called for a revote. The union insisted uh, at the time that they would fight for exactly that. But you know, after losing by about a two to one margin in the first vote, vote it seemed like a long shot. How unusual is it for the NLRB to find enough violations by management to call for a revote like this in modern history?
2: Well, it's not a rare thing. It ha- it does happen. Uh, you know uh well not with regularity but mm-hmm. it ha- it does happen when it, when an employer is egregious they call for a revote. there've been there've been many second re-votes that, that do take place mm-hmm. um so it's it's uh, it i uh, i it i would not say that every uh campaign union campaign that fails they 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 they, they often they do file unfair labor practices against the company and sometimes they it litigated and sometimes uh the, uh, the a a, a, sec, a second election is called for. Here's the reason, though, that um, although I am a, a staunch believer in organized labor, mm-hmm. I think we need to take this with a with a pretty big grain of salt. And here's the reason: mm-hmm. um, the NLRB did, pr- pr- and, there, and now Biden is, is 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 putting some liberals, good pro labor liberals, on it. Mm-hmm. They found that the. Um, Uh, Amazon in in this uh, instance where there was a mailbox that the Amazon sort of took over this mailbox as it were and sort of made it seem as if uh, uh, you know, putting your ballot in this mailbox was kind of a, uh, a, a kind of a company thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, it was, you know, and, and 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 the NLRB argued that that Amazon was sort of taking over the the election, really, which the which is really run by the NLRB. And, and they were right, of course, and and that was wrong for the Amazon to do that. But there was a everything else that Amazon was doing, much of what was doing was. Which, which we, which is intimidation, which is unfair, which is uh, 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 you know uh, all the things you were talking about, is legal, and Amazon is doing it as we speak. In other words, once uh, Amazon uh, realized that the, the, the probably the the election would be overturned, they once again began to hold these. Captive audience mm-hmm. meetings they 're going on right now as we speak uh, they 've been doing that for a month, uh, and you know the your listeners should know that these are are, are meetings that are called by the company in which they, as they, they lecture to the to the workers why union 's a bad thing they 're really sort of closer to maoist sort of re education you mm-hmm. know, camps or or stalinist uh, uh, kind of coercion methods than, than anything else, and so that 's happening as we speak plus um, uh, Amazon is is you know uh, keeping tabs on 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 uh, well, you know who are the who are the union union activists etc. So that's what, So so while the, the election will re- rerun this the other sad fact is that um, something like ninety five percent of all rerun elections fail. In other mm. words, it's even harder the second time around. Um, uh, by this point, the the workforce itself. It's a, more than 100% over, uh, turnover, so the workforce itself is churning. You have to re, reorganize re, you know, uh, the entire workforce. Mm. Uh, the union does. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's a big effort for the union, uh, the retail uh, the wholesale, sort of a small union, to go and, and do it again. So well, all this points out is that we really need a completely fundamental and radical change in the labor law, and, and more than just the labor law, in the whole ethos. That, that surrounds the, the idea of workers having, having rights and having, having a voice and, and having a union. Um, and, and we should get into that, but I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it, I'm delighted they, they, they turned it over, but, but, but it, it, it's an indication that, that the labor law, which was designed to help workers form unions, that was the whole point of it, right. uh, is totally, completely broken. It's really a, a weapon in the hands of management now, yeah. even, even when you have liberals at the NLRB running the
0: show. Well, uh, that is disappointing to hear. And yeah, I mean, it seems like they picked out, uh, you know, a few points like that that mailbox issue. But there was a whole bunch of other stuff that went on that, oh, yeah. you know, the AFL-CIO uh, reports, right. for example, that during the first vote, Amazon flooded the plant with managers, anti-union yeah. consultants right. to interrogate workers uh, one-on-one about their support for the union. That sounds incredibly intimidating.
2: But, but yes, but it's all legal it's all legal that's what's that's <laughs> it, what's amazing in fact, and, and, in, fact in, in buffalo as we speak yeah. uh where there's like 60 uh, baristas or 70 who formed a uh, uh, are trying to form a union uh, uh, uh you know uh, howard schultz billionaire howard schultz flies yeah. in on his on his jet and and they're they're bringing in um, uh you know a, a dozen uh, regional managers I, I would say this is a, this is in one sense a hopeful thing in the in the sense of this that the, the, uh, both Amazon and, and, uh, and Starbucks are spending enormous amounts of money to prevent the unionization of really a handful of workers. What does that tell us? Unionization is pretty important. Oh, uh, the yeah. management certainly knows it is, so it, 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 it should say, "Hey, this is this is something important to do." So uh, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah, but the,
0: no, right. it, it is amazing that the, the 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 ends they are willing to go to to try to stop this from one yeah. single plant uh, when it comes to Amazon, one yeah. single you know shop when it comes to Starbucks. Right. Right. There was even uh, AFL-CIO also noted that during the uh, initial election period, Amazon was actually going around literally offering $1,000, yeah. apparently, right. to any employee who would quit because then they would not be entitled to vote in the election. That was, you know, right in the middle yeah. of the election. Yeah.
2: Yes, and let me say this, that, that, yeah. that, 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 that brings up a, a very interesting point. So this sort of moment of, sort of the great resignation, or whatever you want to call it, this big churn in the, in the workforce, which is certainly taking place, is, is a kind of double-edged sword. On the one hand, it, it definitely shows that there's a tremendous discontent uh, with um, the uh, you know uh, current uh, conditions for mm-hmm. l- l- well for low wage even for for, for white collar workers uh, at home there's tremendous discontent and people have uh, uh, when they have a chance or are, are simply quitting and, and and sometimes you find these uh, fast food uh, restaurant they, the workers put up a sign we've all quit go you know goodbye right. yeah. uh, so that yeah so on the, on the one hand that I think that there is a, a, a tremendous. Um, sense of, of grievance, and it's more than just the kind of I want more money. It's a kind of moral sensibility. We you know, we sh- we soldiered through this pandemic. We were the frontline workers. We we kept this country rolling and going and, 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 and we aren't you know, we aren't appreciated. That I mean all social movements have a great sense of of their sort of moral virtue mm-hmm. that, that they constitute the, the republic. I mean, the civil rights movement, the, the women's movement, yeah. Anyway, and, and the labor movement back in the 30s and maybe today as well. I think there's a strong sense of that. Um, so that's, that's important on the one side. On the other, on the other side, the, the sort of downside of this is that, that when, when you have a tremendous churn in the workforce, it's very difficult to organize. I mean, mm. you, you, you organize them one day and they're gone the next. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain if you took a survey of the Amazon workers at that Workplace and Amazon was encouraging this by giving those thousand dollar checks out. Yeah. Uh, you'd find that 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 a, that a relatively small proportion of all those who are there today were there, you know, a year and a half ago, or well, you know, and so. You
0: know. Uh, well, I wonder if that would change if, in fact, they did unionize, they were able to get better working condition well, and course. so forth. And well,
2: yes, of course. And,
0: and well, yeah. and and to that end, because you had mentioned, uh, Professor, the you know that 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 our labor laws. Uh, were, I guess, initially well-intended, but they seem to have gone so far uh, in the other direction, in the direction of management and against labor. There has been a move uh, over the past year, at least, uh, for the Protect the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act. It's now pending in Congress. What? And I know the odds are very long to get that passed, but how would the PRO Act have actually changed what happened, for example, during the first go-around in, in Bessemer, to your understanding, or now, I guess, to the second go-around, when they're doing many of the same yeah. tactics? Would PROACT have well, changed that?
2: It, well, I mean, it would have, would, have, would have helped a lot. I mean, really, you know, much more, uh, quite a bit. It, it, it How would so? It would make illegal these captive audience meetings, which are very, very um, uh, intimidating uh. And, uh, and really authoritarian. Uh, it, would, it would eliminate that. It would also increase the penalties the financial penalties on companies for violating the labor law. See, right now, what, how much is, 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 is uh, Amazon going to pay for its violation of the labor law, which is creating this new election? Uh, you know, it, it, it clearly violated what the NLRB... You know how much you're going to pay? Zero. Right. <laughs> Zero. Right. And the same is, true when you when you fire a worker. How much do you pay? You pay, basically, their back wages minus, minus... Anything they've earned in the meantime to pay the mortgage or eat. Oh. So, so the, 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 the penalties are utterly trivial, and, and, and anti-union consultants simply tell uh, employers, look, uh, do whatever you can do. If you have to pay a fine, big deal. Wow, um, and the Pro,
0: so about, uh, the, Pro Act,
2: the PRO Act would go about? The PRO Act would go away. Now, actually, Bernie Sanders and others have, have sort of inserted some elements of the PRO Act into this uh, social infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, bill, which is now pending. I think that includes, uh, it, it's hard to do it because, you know, reconciliation, but they, 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 I think they've increased the penalties, the financial penalties, on companies for violating uh, the, the labor law. And that's, and that's important. And, and as well, some other things which are not, which, for example, that subcontractors for the government have to pay 15 bucks an hour and things of that sort. So there are some pro-labor elements in this. Um, social infrastructure. That's in the um, Build
0: Back but, Better Act. Um, well,
2: for, the, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the new one. From the new one, pending. yeah.
0: The reconciliation yeah, uh, bill. Right, is right, there anything right. for labor to celebrate in, uh, well, if not the Build Back Better Act? Well, there is in that, but it, it, how about it, in it, the yes, oh, yes, bipartisan oh, yes. infrastructure bill?
2: Yes. Oh, yes. Very much so, because the um, infrastructure uh, provides. Uh, it, it's clearly designed for 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 highway for high to, for blue collar workers mm-hmm. and for higher wages and especially and union wages u- union as well. So one of the provisions is that 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 contractors for the federal government, uh, you know, will have to pay prevailing wages. That's a that's a, a long old old uh, sort of um, uh, Bacon Davis. That's the name of the law, mm-hmm. which means that that. Whatever the union is the union rate is that a contractor for a big federal project has to pay that, and what that means is it reduces the the uh the uh opposition to a union because you have to pay the wages anyway and that's that's in the uh in the um infrastructure bill hmm. um, uh, plus uh there are these uh elements that say that uh that subcontractors have to pay even if uh, in other they uh, have they have to, they have to uh, accord certain uh, um you know uh, mm-hmm. osha and uh and and you know various uh, sta- labor standards uh if they receive money from the government as well so it's it's definitely a it's definitely a good thing and right now as i speak the the certainly the construction trades unions and the uh, you know are very uh, actively uh, seeking to uh to make um, you know, to, to take advantage of some of this.
0: La- the last time uh, you were on, Professor Lichtenstein, we discussed Joe Biden's very strong, surprisingly strong at, yep. at the time, his video statement. You may recall he he released in yes. favor of the PRO Act at the time. This yep. was following on his election eve vow to be, quote, the most pro-union president yep. you have ever seen. Uh, is there evidence yet, one way or another? And I realize the bar, I think we talked about it last time a little bit, the bar is, is, is pretty low, at least in modern history. Uh, but is there any evidence as to whether, in fact, Biden is keeping his promise to be the most pro-union president we've ever seen.
2: Well, I mean, of course, what he can do is limited by the filibuster and things of that sort. You're mm-hmm. right, the, the PRO Act probably won't won't pass. It'll be, hard, it'll be a long, difficult. Uh, but he, but he, Biden, clearly, he does he does talk about he when he announced the infrastructure law that, that that was he did sign. He said, you know, this is for for union workers and blue collar workers. He made that very clear, uh, and so he sort of he sent, he sent that message out there. Is that unusual? Uh, think,
0: is that unusual for a president? Yes, because he yes, speaks about yes, unions yes, a yes, lot.
2: Because the red, the rhetoric of other Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, mm-hmm. not to mention Carter, yeah, it was always a kind of vague sense of oh, we're going to. Sustain middle class uh, families, or mm-hmm. sustain, you know. But it was, but but Biden, as uh, he does, he he, he, he talks about you know, union, uh, union work and the dignity of work. He does talk about that. Now it's just rhetoric, uh, although you know. And he, I, but but, I, but his appointments, his appointments have been uh, to the NLRB and, and also to the fe- to the uh, uh, Federal Trade Commission. Right. Uh, you know, and, and play, uh, have been good, quite liberal. I want to make one point. I yeah. think one thing we talk about. Is see like like uh, you you read the Amazon statement, yeah. which was frankly kind of arrogant. Uh-huh. You know, it was arrogant. They said, "Oh, oh we re- we sort of respect the right of workers to, to choose, but but we don't want a union, and we you know you, we think the NLRB is inter- interfering." It had a kind of arrogance to it, right. condescension even. It, it what needs to happen, and is this is you need to make management kind of come to the conclusion that. The lesser evil, the lesser problem in their, you know, business model would be recognizing the union rather than facing the ire mm. of either a aroused public or government uh, action. And so, right now, the the reinvigoration of antitrust law on in the in the in the Biden administration is actually very pro labor. It's telling these, well, Facebook and all mm-hmm. these Silicon Valley firms and. Amazon's kind of a sil- Silicon Valley form That look, there's a your business model is being threatened, you know. And you know, if you want to do something to, to stay, you you, ha- you may have to, you may need some allies. Well, you, you and you a potential that. ally is actually labor, uh, and uh, you know, and and that happened in the '30s when there were uh, when there were efforts to break up uh, big chain stores and things. Mm. Uh, it, it turned out that they that the A and P and companies like that said to said to the labor movement, "Well, we'll recognize you." You know, if you if you uh, you know let us stay big, and that happened.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, because in fact, yeah, Joe Biden has appointed uh, to to head the FTC for the Federal Trade Commission, right. for example, someone who is, uh, you know, very anti-monopoly, anti. Uh, you anti, uh, wrote about you about Amazon. You wrote all about Amazon. Yeah. yeah, and so your suggestion is now's a good time for Amazon and Facebook and these other folks to get their workers on their side to argue in favor of our company. Hey, don't break us up. Uh, we're treated well. These are good jobs and so on and so forth.
2: Yeah. That's, that's right. And that has happened in the past. That has happened in the past. Uh, uh I mean that was like General Motors in the 1950s. Uh, basically there was, there was there was a sort of threat of antitrust activity against uh-huh. General Motors, but they had the, the, but the but the UAW which had good contracts and which had and was you know improving them basically was was not in favor of breaking up General Motors. Um, and I think that's uh, that, that. I mean, I'm not saying that's on the, that's not on the agenda tomorrow. But uh-huh. but I think well, what you need to do is, is to put the fear of God into these uh, corporations, uh, not just on the labor on the question of their workers organizing, but in other ways as well, regulation, yeah. uh, you know, price controls, all sorts of things. And and one thing we do have in this country right now is a is a big hostility against Silicon Valley on the left and the right, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So um, uh, anyway, I I, I think that that's another front, and I'd like to see Biden uh, proceed on that. And, you know, to a degree, he's doing it.
0: That's fascinating, because actually, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect, obviously, Amazon and the others have made the calculation that right now, it's better for them, it's cheaper for them to invest in you know, preventing these unions, but maybe they ought right. to invest in uh, finding some new friends right. at this point. Right, uh, right. Uh, right. Professor, yeah. before I let you go here, uh, sort of a, yeah. a, a bigger picture. You talked about this a little bit, and I know you wrote about some of this recently in an op-ed uh, for mm-hmm. Washington Post that I will link to when I post tonight's show at bradblog.com. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, But to what do you attribute this sort of massive move seemingly towards labor and increased wages, union membership, uh, and all sorts of major companies from, you know, John Deere to hospital workers across the country, uh, folks finally walking out, demanding better pay and benefit? Why is this happening now? Is it a transient moment? And is there anything historically that uh, this moment might be compared to?
2: Right. Well, I mean, as I say, there are two reasons. One is a kind of a, any, any labor economist would understand, well, there's a labor shortage, and therefore that makes labor more valuable. And, and companies, non-union companies, as well as unionized ones, are, are are willing to grant wage increases. So that's one thing. But the other side of it is, of course, this, this I think, I think a, a real shift in public sentiment, uh, which does sort of see the, these uh, you know blue collar workers as and, and people or people in you know hospitals and whatnot mm-hmm. as uh, as really uh, essential and 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 kind of a a, a pillar of the of the society in a, in a time of trial and i think that gives a, a kind of elan and a kind of moral sensibility in the same way that martin luther king could could declare you know the civil rights movement was was not just for African Americans getting a, a, a better a cup of coffee, but it was, it was going to re, renew and, and revitalize America, and so I think that's that's an element there as well. Um, now, as a, in terms of um, uh, and, and my analogy, which I made in, in, a, in a piece for the Post, was mm-hmm. when when it was right after the Civil War uh when uh you know 4 million african uh, uh, uh sl- enslaved people were free mm-hmm. what did they do they they moved to get better better uh, farms better you know conditions uh, there was a tremendous kind of Churning and moving of the population in the Mm. American South, Uh, the whites didn't like that at all. But it was a it was a kind of uh, the fruit of victory and a a kind of exercise of power, which did, despite all the the bad things about Jim Crow and the century of of segregation afterwards, it did. It was a lot better than slavery, and uh, so I think that workers today who who've been used to these low wage jobs and dead end low wage, you know. Undignified jobs. I think there's a, a taste of freedom, <laughs> and I think that's really powerful.
0: Uh, it, it is, and an apt and interesting metaphor comparing uh, to uh, yeah. to former slaves, uh, the, the yeah. movement that we are now seeing. Professor Nels, Nelson Lichtenstein, always a delight speaking with you. Uh, I, I suspect and hope we'll do it more in the future, as this as this this, uh, this second shot, this uh, mulligan vote happens at the Bessemer plant in Alabama, and as hopefully all sorts of things. Are are finally beginning after decades, to actually change, it seems, sort of, for now, for workers around the country. Nelson Lichtenstein is a labor historian and distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Professor Lichtenstein, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome indeed. All right, uh, he's great. He's I, delightful. Uh, he's, he is delightful. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't. I, I hope for more uh, problems with labor I know. in this country, more just victories so we can, for labor, just know? so we can have him back I to know. talk about it. Love having him. All right. Uh, also, Desi Doyen, love having you with the Green News Report. Yay! That's coming up straight ahead right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
1: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
0: Well, we have been gone for a week. From the Green News Report. And a know, few things happened. <laughs> I know I feel all the better for it, <laughs> Uh Got my brain to relax a little bit, and you are back to ruin everything again. Yes. With our latest trying-to-catch-up-with-everything Green News Report. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve will be replenished. That
1: story and a boatload of other news from while we were out.
0: That boatload from the GNR Strategic Reserve. And more straight ahead from BradBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's also not the best look right after you come back from a climate conference. We must end our addiction to fossil fuels. What's that? Gas is 3.50 a gallon. Let the rivers be choked with crude oil and the carcasses of pelicans. <laughs> this is your Green News Report. Bang! Doyen, the Green News Report. We're back. I know. And as is the tradition, when we're gone for a week, we come back with a boatload of stories that you catch us up in somehow or another in just six minutes. Good luck.
1: Okay. Well, first, the bad news. More fossil fuel deaths, this time in Russia. Top managers at a coal mine in Siberia have been arrested after a buildup of methane gas in a ventilation shaft ignited last week, killing at least 52 people. It's the worst mining disaster in Russia in over a decade, mm. according to officials.
0: That we know of.
1: In central Iran. <laughs> violent crackdowns on farmers protesting water shortages. The protests have been taking place over the past month in the beds of dried-up rivers. The farmers allege mismanagement and misallocation of scarce water resources. The Iran Meteorological Organization says that 97% of Iran now faces water scarcity issues amid an unprecedented drought exacerbated by man-made climate change. In Brazil, the Amazon rainforest saw record deforestation the most since 2006, according to a new report Critics accused President Jair Bolsonaro's administration of delaying the release of that report Until after the recently concluded U.N. climate summit in Glasgow
0: Of course he did
1: Here in the U.S., the storm-weary Pacific Northwest is getting hit this week With yet another freight train of consecutive atmospheric rivers Bringing relentless heavy rain, severe floods, and major infrastructure damage mm. The National Weather Service on Monday confirmed that Seattle just broke its record for the wettest fall in
0: recorded history. Wow, and in Seattle, that is saying something.
1: In California, a preliminary report finds that climate-fueled wildfires have destroyed about 20% of all giant sequoias in just the past two years. Horrible. In the nation's capital, after OPEC producers resisted calls to increase production, President Biden ordered the release of 50 million gallons of oil from the nation's strategic Petroleum Reserve to help ease spiking gas prices that are fueling inflation. Did it work? No. Analysts say the very gradual release from the reserve will have at best minimal effect on retail gas prices. State Department Energy Advisor Amos Hochstein told CNBC on Monday that the administration will release more from the reserve if needed.
0: This is a tool that was available to us and will be available again. Remember, this Strategic Petroleum Reserve will be replenished and therefore we have more flexibility to be able to do this again if the need arises. Oh, I'm sure it won't.
1: In a new report, the Biden Interior Department recommended overhauling the nation's oil and gas leasing program on the public's lands, saying, quote, it fails to provide a fair return to taxpayers even before factoring in the resulted climate-related costs that must be borne by taxpayers.
0: So the oil companies and coal companies will be paying the U.S. more to take our natural resources?
1: Yes, the report recommends hiking royalty rates that have not been raised in more than 100 years. Oh, taxpayers for Common Sense estimated that that has cost taxpayers an estimated $13 billion in lost revenue just since
0: 2010. But let's not pick winners and losers, right? The report
1: calls for increasing bond payments. That's money that drillers must set aside to cover costs of cleanup and land restoration. It also recommends limiting the lands and waters of Available for drilling. Critics note the report did not address the leasing program's contribution to climate change and that it stopped short of recommending an end to the oil and gas leasing program on public lands.
0: Well, Biden has tried to stop oil and gas leasing on public lands for new leases, but he has approved more drilling permits than even George W. Bush.
1: Yep. But some good news. Good. The Interior Department also approved the second large offshore wind farm for the U.S. off the coast of Rhode Island. In Germany, the new incoming government committed to phase out coal entirely by 2030, eight years earlier than previously planned. Nice. Plus a target of 80% renewable electricity by 2030 and mandatory rooftop solar on all new commercial buildings. Nice and nicer. Portugal announced that it is now entirely coal free nine years earlier than its deadline. Wow. Nearly 70% of Portugal's electricity is now generated from renewable energy sources. Sweet. And finally, Scotland announced that renewable energy met 97% of its electricity demand in 2020.
0: Well done, Desi Doyen, for much more on all of those stories. And yes, even more that we couldn't get to today. <laughs> Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been... Your Green News Report.
1: Back in the saddle again. Yeah, we are. Whoopee tie, I, oh, rocking to
0: a Yeah, park. thank you very much, Tess to... Doyen. I'm out yep. of I'm out of breath just listening to that today. <laughs> uh, by the way, I know there was I know there were several stories, there were actually some good news stories that you did not include in our while we were out. This is
1: true. I um, ran out of time. I
0: know, I'm curious. How much of a of a percentage of things were you not able to use that we'll hopefully get to use? On, on our next Well we'll report. definitely
1: Hear them on the next Well I should say We hope to hear them Maybe. On the next Pretend Depends on what uh, Happens yeah. in the meantime yes, Hopefully nothing new And huge and awful Happens Oh but I'm that's sure it won't It never unlikely. does yeah. Unlikely um, I don't know how To put it into a percentage I would just basically Say that uh, There was a lot That went on <laughs> And there always Is a lot that goes on We could fill An entire show Every day I With know. everything That goes on I just try to distill It to the most Important things And so.
0: yet We only give it you know, six minutes, a couple of times a week. And even at that, it's more than pretty much the entirety <laughs> of the rest of the corporate media. This is true. Shameful. This all is true. right. Anyway, thank you very much, Desi Doyne. Thanks to my guest today, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of UC Santa Barbara. And my thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us or both. If you missed any portion of today's show or just need to hear it again because there was so much information, <laughs> You can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves as long as we possibly can, doing whatever it is we try to do here every day. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am TheBradBlog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
1: Back can